No matter what you're a fan of, Texas has the trip for you. There's the trip to Texas and the trip. Or maybe you're the kind of fan who'd prefer a trip to Texas or a trip. Either way, go to TravelTexas.com slash get your own for the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network. I'm here with Chris Gillibo and Chris, welcome to the show. Hey, James. Thanks so much. It's a huge honor. You know, Chris, I like to do the show around this idea that people can choose themselves for mm. career, for success, for happiness, and they can and and these choices, you, 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 they make these choices rather than making the choices that have been imposed on them by mm. society, whether it's parents or corporations or the mythology of what we're supposed to do but you have really you're like the pinnacle example of someone who's chosen himself well that's kind of you to say i think uh my values are certainly aligned with your mission i mean for what i've been trying to do with art of nonconformity it's a very very similar mission statement i've always said you know that the mission statement of what i'm trying to do is to help people understand they don't have to live their life the way others expect you know, they can do good things for themselves and for other people at the same time. It's not a false choice. And, you know, here's here are all the stories of different people around the world who've done that, you know, in their own way. So I, I think that I, I think you said so, some very powerful things there. First off, they don't always have to do uh, things that, you know, you know, people sometimes think that choosing yourself or doing what you want is almost selfish. But in mm. fact, You've demonstrated that it's quite the reverse, and you've written a little about this. But I want to kind of give – you've done so many different things that I want to kind of give like the the highlights or what I think the highlights <laughs> are and then what, what I think we can we can talk about. First sure. off, um, you've had kind of a, a, an interesting quest for yourself, which is to visit every country in the world by the age of 35. And so, That's right. So I, I actually – don't want to talk too much about travel, but I, I like the idea of having a quest. But mm-hmm. but first off, did you achieve your did you achieve your goal? I did. I'm 36 now. So so last year I came to the end of the journey. It was 193 countries. Um, it was about a 10 year quest, maybe five years of, of really actively pushing toward it, but 10 years of total travel, and I, I did achieve that goal last year. So like I don't know Tonga, you visited like all the Polynesian <laughs> countries. Yeah, every country. Sometimes wow. I get emails, uh, James, and you know, they're, they're, somebody's writing in from Bangladesh or somewhere, and they're like, oh, you know, I, I saw you visit every country, but did you come to mine? You know, and I'm like, you know, if it's a country, I, I was there, basically. <laughs> is you know, it, I is haven't there, been to every okay. – like, go ahead. Sorry. Greenland. Greenland. Greenland is not a country, actually. 
Oh, it's that? I didn't know that. Who owns no, it? No, it's like- a political territory of Denmark, I believe. So there's, lot, there's lots of interesting little places like that, um, you know, that are essentially thought of as independent. And I, I've been to a bunch of those places as well. But, but for the quest, you know, I, I think it's important to choose your criteria and say, okay, here's what I'm going to, you know, measure this by. Otherwise, I'm going to go crazy. Like, you know, six years in, I'm going to realize there's 20 more countries or something. So I just chose to use the UN member states. So that's 193. It was 192 when I started and then South Sudan became a country. So I had to add that one in. Africa, of course, and you mentioned this quite a bit. Africa was a challenge just because there's so many countries mm-hmm. and, and some of them are hard to get to or there's wars or whatever. Um, what was like the hardest country to get to? You know, there are probably maybe three or four that were especially difficult. Um, Pakistan, I wasn't able to get a visa for, but I but I went anyway and, and managed to kind of, you know, convince my convince the folks to let me in. Uh, Saudi Arabia, also a challenge for the same reason. But probably the most challenging was Eritrea. Uh, when I went there, I was actually deported in the middle of the night. Um, it wasn't the greatest uh, experience overall. So that would probably be the most difficult one. But, but you know, the thing is, like, most of them were not terribly difficult. It was just the quest in total that was difficult. You know, it was just the right. culmination of it. It wasn't that there was one place that was, like, the most crazy, difficult, challenging place in, in the world or whatever. So so um, this is how naive I am on geography. What is Eritrea? Oh, sorry. Eritrea is a small country. Uh, in like North Central Africa, it borders uh, Ethiopia. And at the time, well, pretty much, you know, it still is, uh, Eritrea and Ethiopia are essentially at war. And the U.S. kind of de facto supports Ethiopia. Eritrea is a pretty closed country geopolitically. They don't have a lot of visitors. And they're also not too excited about Americans coming to visit because the U.S. is giving so much aid to Ethiopia. So that I would was think the they would there. like your U.S. dollars in there, though. Uh, you would think, but not necessarily. Sometimes what the people want and what the government want are not the same thing. I see. So so you were like in the middle of the night, like you had already gotten in the country and they sort of found you and kicked you out. Yeah, I was I was put on a, on a 4 a.m. flight back to Cairo. They took my passport, eventually got the passport, you know, when I landed back in Egypt. And then Egypt Air actually tried to shake me down for $400, you know, for the for the plane ticket that I, you know, that I was deported on. Um but, you know, it's all in a day's work, I guess. <laughs> all right. Well, I'm going to get more to that in, in a second. Uh, I want to I want to finish giving the highlights of what I think are the highlights of your life. And, and, and you could add to that, certainly. But um, you've also written a bunch of uh, bestsellers, bestselling books, The Hundred Dollar Startup, which I think is a key book because a lot of people will say, oh, my gosh, he visited 193 countries. He must be rich or something. But in The $100 Startup, you really kind of describe how people can start from scratch and build up a, let's call it a lifestyle business that Mm -hmm. can essentially support the lifestyle of 99% of the types of quests that one can have. And and you, you, you kind of prove that through all of your books. But I think in The $100 Startup, you really give kind of a great... Uh, how to plus tons of examples on how people could uh, essentially quit their jobs and and make money and follow their dreams. I'm just I'm kind of describing it really broadly, but I think you do a good job of that. No, thank you for saying that. I think that's a that's a good description, and I think what I'm trying to do with it, uh, or what I try to do, 
was to, to highlight lots of different examples and stories um, just to kind of kind of challenge that model that says, well, only, you know, a certain kind of personality can be an entrepreneur or, you know, if this guy was able to travel the world or, or whoever you want to point to, you know, it's easy to say, well, I don't relate to that person. I can't do that. And so the whole goal was to say, like, look at all these, you know, so-called ordinary people average people around the world who have been able to, as you say, create that lifestyle business, which is essentially creating their own freedom, right? Like the business is what it is, but it represents something much greater, you know, than that to them. So they're working for freedom and independence. And that's a value that I want to highlight and, you know, share with people. Well, it's interesting you say that about how people sometimes come back with the argument, not everyone's meant to be an entrepreneur. And that is a completely false argument. It's Mm. true that Um, Some people are afraid to be an entrepreneur, but it's only really in the past hundred years that people worked in cubicles for corporations. And for for the million years before that, humans were entrepreneurs of of some form or other. We we weren't all Steve Jobs or Mark Zuckerberg, but we were all involved in kind of, um, you know, developing skills and marketing those skills and using those skills to survive in Mm -hmm. in various, uh, you know, ecospheres. So. So you wrote the hundred dollar startup. Then you wrote the the art of nonconformity, which I thought was an excellent book, which kind of bridged your first and your third book. But it's basically how you can um, create a life that's truly yours. And there, there's one um, quote in the book that I really like, which is um, how you you talk about uh, uh, you know how much uh, how what percentage of your life is sort of you're living as work, and what percentage of your life you're you're devoting towards your your legacy and i think that's a a really important question for for people to ask and to move towards more uh percentage of legacies and and, mm. and you kind of discuss that and give uh, your usual style you give tons of examples throughout the book yeah i guess what i hope to do james i know you do this a lot in your work too i don't know if you use the same phrase or if you call it something different but i, I guess i want to prod people toward a sense of urgency i want to to prod them and say like hey you know life is short. Let's, let's do something incredible. We do have so many opportunities available to us. We do have so much possibility. Um, let, let's take advantage of this. So let, let's take advantage of this. Uh, let's, you know, work hard, but let's try to build something. I guess I'm, I'm really interested in building something and constructing something, you know, both for the present in terms of living in the moment, but then also living for the future. Well, it's interesting. I don't always say the same style of urgency because mm. I, I kind of think there's there's two issues. One is I think the economy is turning upside down. So if you have like a regular job and there's nothing wrong with that, certainly many people have jobs that they love. But if you have a regular job, you always have to be wary of the fact that salaries have been going down versus inflation for 40 years. Mm. And, um, you know, I'm I'm on the board of directors of a billion revenues uh, employment agency, and I see what's happening in the economy. People are just getting fired and laid off every day, more and more, and the, and and the number of part time employees is is spiking. So people kind of the sense of urgency is that people have to at least diversify the way they look at their life and sure. and try to come up with a life that leans more towards what you call nonconformity because of the urgency of the economy. And then the flip side of that is, yes, if you can live a life where you leave a legacy and you do what you love and you do and you do creative things and you pursue goals and dreams and and whatever, that's also important. Um, But there's a balance there, too, in terms of like, you know, people paying the bills and people um, paying for a mortgage and supporting their family and sending their kids to to schools and and educating them and so on. So I always kind of have 
have the balance. I believe in both, but mm-hmm. but it's sort of like um, you know, some people are in a situation where because they've already bought into one system, it, it, they can't immediately sort of move into another. It's yeah. it kind of is a blend, which you you discuss. I mean, you go over that, and and you yourself have, have made uh, a concerted effort to go from you know one type of life to to another. And, and through a series of realizations. But I, I want to also mention your third book, which is about to come out. And I kind of feel like these three books, um, well, the, the title of the third book is The Happiness of Pursuit. Nice play on on words. But I kind of feel these three books make a, a trilogy of sorts. Uh, and I don't know if you felt the same way. I don't know if I designed it that way, James. I don't know if that was that strategic from the beginning of saying, you know, five years ago, I'm going to write my first book. And then here's the second book. And then the third one, you know, five years on is going to tie into it. But I mean, certainly the ideas are connected. And certainly, hopefully, I've improved, you know, as as both a writer and a listener. I feel like maybe in the beginning, I was a little bit rough around the edges, which is which is fine and normal. And I still am in many ways. But I, I guess I've tried to, to listen to people in the community to learn from other folks and and say, okay, how can this apply in different ways? And you know, we were just talking briefly before you know we started the show about how I do these tours, and uh, you know I go on the road and I meet readers, and it's not always like a huge amount of people every night, um, but that whole practice has changed the way I think about everything I do because you know from city to city I'm going to meet someone and I'm going to have their story in my mind, even if I'm not writing about their story, I'm going to think about them later, and so because I'm trying to you know just widen the message and make sure it relates to as, as many people as possible. Well, it's interesting because um, I think of them as a trilogy, and I actually do think – I don't necessarily think people need to read these books in order. In fact, I almost think people need to read these books in reverse order <laughs> because, um, you know, The Happiness of Pursuit um, discusses – it discusses your traveling, but I want to focus on um, the quest-like aspect. It basically says ha- have a quest in your life. And here's how you develop. Here's how you come up with what your quest is, and here's how you execute on that quest. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the art of nonconformity discusses the benefits of living a life that uh, kind of is different from, let's call it the mainstream life. I don't know a, a different phrase, or there's probably many phrases. And then the hundred dollar startup. I almost see that as the last in the trilogy because here's the nuts and bolts on how you can uh, make some money. So that you can li- so that you can fulfill your quest, and for you, your specific quest was I want to hit every country in the world by the time I'm 35, and and you achieve that quest. But along the way, you had to decide, okay, I'm going to lead a life that's not the conformist life, and in order to do that, I need to do the hundred dollar startup. Because you, I just want to make it clear to to listeners, you started from scratch, and it's not like you ever um, made tens of millions of dollars that you could suddenly uh, travel all around the world in, in luxury, you kind of scratched along and fulfilled your quest. Am I correct? You're absolutely correct. Yeah, there was a lot of scratching along and that's and that's fine. I think there was there was a lot of beauty in that. And the first hundred countries actually cost about thirty thousand dollars, you know, so thirty thousand is is a significant amount of money. But, you know, we're talking about years of travel and all these great experiences. You know, that was a worthwhile investment, you know, for me. And the second hundred countries you know, probably cost a little bit more than that. But still, it's it's not a huge amount of money. And I was earning my own you know, income along the way through all these micro entrepreneurial projects um, that you mentioned. Yeah. And just to put it in perspective, in the past 10 years, while you were on this quest, what was your worst annual income and what was your best annual income? And the reason I ask is, is because money's 
it's not that it's always the most important thing, but people need money for food, shelter, travel, all the basic things. And I just want to show as an example um, how you did it. Yeah. Okay. No, I'm happy to talk about that. Uh, I wrote a manifesto called 279 Days to Overnight Success. Um, I, people I, can... I read that. That was very good. Yeah, cool. So thanks. So people can go and download that and read a whole lot more about that. Um, but the short version of it is, let's see, probably the lowest income, you know, when we think about like the last 10 years, probably be around 40 to 50,000. Like that's kind of, there was a couple of years like in graduate school where I was uh, doing that. I mean, this is all entrepreneurial. And then I had some successful business projects a couple of times, um, some good book advances or good sales or something. And the income would be maybe it was multiple six figures. Uh, so 200, 300,000 or something. So obviously that's quite significant, um, you know, for a lot of listeners, but that's probably the higher end. And that's a little bit later after, you know, things were established and successful. And most of the quest was done at an income much lower than that. Right. And also like if you're getting a book advance, it means you've got to write a book. So mm. it's, it's, they, you know, you also have to take into account the fact that while you're traveling around the world, you're also writing this book, which is not an easy project to do. Right. You know, no, I was a pretty, uh, I was a pretty frugal traveler, sometimes to a fault. You know, I think like in the end, I actually started, you know, staying in nicer hotels and just to be more comfortable or I had work commitments. I needed more reliable internet and such. Um, but in the beginning, you know, I, I was staying in some, some pretty, you know, pretty cheap places and I, I didn't mind that. It wasn't like I was suffering, you know, I, I was really embracing that value of adventure. And so, you know, I, I guess like I'm, I'm fortunate that some of the projects have been successful now and I, I am doing well, but this is almost like post quest, you know, most of the quest was scratching along. And when I say scratching along, I like to use that phrase here is again, I wasn't struggling. I wasn't poor, you know, I never wanted to, to say that, but it wasn't something I don't think that was out of the reach of a lot of people. Let's say that. No, but you were, uh, and I, I forget which one you, maybe it was in that, um, the, the, you know, the, the last one you mentioned, the 279 days, uh, article that you wrote, uh, you mentioned you were working like a hundred hours a week. So, <laughs> I was because I, I was doing something I enjoyed. You know, it, if you if you do the work that you love, then you work more at it. At least that's how I was. So, and I guess I I had I had, you know the whole point of that manifesto was to say like, you know, look, you know, I'm making 50k or whatever through my online writing. This is again like year one. You know, I, I was like, I'm happy with that. Like, I really am happy. Like, I found a way to be content and to to live. With, like, this is all I need. If I make more, that's great. You know, and, and I did end up, it, I did end up making more. But I guess I kind of structured the life around. Like here, here's something that I can accommodate, you know, at this income that will allow me to do what I hope to do. Right. And the problem is, I think a lot of people when they're when they're at a job and this is not again, this is not a problem because there's there's both stability and there's pros and cons for everything. But mm. when you're at a job, you're capped by your salary. It's harder right. to make uh, income outside of that. But when you're on your own, you're sort of forced. So the, 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 when you're on your own, the con is you could you could make almost nothing. But mm. the pro is if you're doing well and you're doing what you love and other people love it and you've you've you've, uh, you know, inferred that there's demand for what you're doing, you could make a lot more money. So it's right. a risk, but the risk, you know, should pay off. People, there's risk versus reward. Right. And in some ways, the, the higher your salary is in a traditional job, you know, you know, the the harder it is to say, you know, farewell to that, to do something else on your own. Right. Because your lifestyle tends to expand you know, to accommodate whatever the salary is. And, 
And, uh, you know, as you said, you, it's not so much about being happier with less or something. It's about figuring out, okay, what is this lifestyle? What do I need? And in some ways it's much easier, at least I, I believe, and I think you do too. It's much easier to figure those things out on your own. Yeah. The, the worst thing that ever happened to me at a full-time job was that I got a promotion. So <laughs> right, you make, you make an, an incrementally small, uh, uh, amount of money more, um, right. but suddenly you have a lot more responsibilities and people reporting to you and, uh, life becomes a lot more stressful. And, you know, mm-hmm. you mentioned life is short. That's what, that's certainly a way to look at it. Like, uh, you know, you only have so much of yourself to give and so much energy to give in the allotted time we have on this planet. And you want to make sure you, you give it to the world in the right way. Right. You know, the other thing I wanted to mention about legacy, I don't know if you have, I don't think you have children, right? I don't. Right. So part of legacy, there's two ways to have a legacy. One is, of course, you replicate your DNA and you have children. The other way to have a legacy is to leave something that's lasting to the world. And I think that's what you've been doing by kind of you know, not only writing about what is the notion of a quest and how to achieve it, but then living it and showing that it can be done. So, so I wanted to talk about that. How do you define a quest and why should people have one? A quest is is an adventure or a journey that has a destination in mind. There's always a beginning. There is always a destination. Ultimately, it's about that journey. It's more about the, the striving and the, the struggle and the challenge. But there is a destination in mind. There is something that you're working toward. There's usually incremental steps. There's usually like a series of milestones. You know, it's not just like, you know, one day I start the quest and then one day I end the quest. There's lots of measurable points along the way. Uh, I mentioned struggle and challenge. There has to be some element of of sacrifice, which isn't meant to be a heavy word. It just there has to be some kind of trade off. It has to be a really not maybe not a really, really difficult thing, but something at least that you if you're going to embrace a quest, you have to say no to something else. And then usually not necessarily always, but most of the time, what I found in talking with people about quests is that something else happened along the way. There would be something unexpected, some kind of transformational element, uh, some amount of change. And then I should have said this earlier, but a lot of people who pursue a quest or adopt a quest kind of come to it through a sense of calling or a missional element, um, not, not necessarily a religious calling, but they just feel this kind of stirring and they have this crazy idea and they can't get that crazy idea out of their heads. And so they end up pursuing that quest and adopting it. Well, and you mentioned uh, many quests begin from a sense of discontent or mm. alienation. If you find yourself feeling discontented, pay attention to the reasons why. And I think this is an interesting thing because, you know, when you're pursuing a quest, uh, you have these along the way, whenever you achieve any of the milestones along the way, you feel uh, the neurochemical dopamine mm. starts shooting through your body. You feel happy until, you know, and then that drives you forward towards the next milestone. And so, you know, the feeling of discontent could be that you're not getting enough of these neurochemicals in your body. Something's happening where you feel like uh, you're being constricted or imprisoned by some other ideas. Like, how do you recognize these feelings of discontent? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great question. That's an interesting theory. I haven't thought too much about the, the chemicals. Um, I, I do a lot of my work for the discontented. You know, I don't I don't know if how you how you feel about that or if you would use similar language or different different language. But I hear from a lot of people who are discontented or dissatisfied. It doesn't mean that they are miserable. That's not necessarily the case. I mean, there might be some miserable folks in miserable jobs, you know, trying to escape. 
But I guess when I think of discontented, I just think of uh, somebody who wants something more, right? And if you want to improve your life, like if you're even listening you know, to podcasts like this or you're following this kind of writing, I think you're kind of self-identifying as saying like, yeah, I, I do want, I don't want to be satisfied with whatever that traditional life is, whether it's conformity, whatever, however you want to describe it. You know, I, I want to embrace something more. So how do you find that discontent? I don't know. I guess I think most people are somewhat aware as they go through their, their day, like they're thinking, what am I working for? What's, what's the point of, of all of this? Um, and so even if they have a great job or a great, you know, self-employment situation that they've created, I think in some ways that's almost even more inspiration to kind of, you know, say, okay, great. Look at, look at this opportunity that I've been able to create for myself. You know, I have chose myself which is somewhat unusual because, you know, most people, or at least a lot of the people that I know perhaps aren't doing that, but I have been able to choose myself. So great. What's next? You know, what am I going to do with that? What am I going to, you know, how am I going to channel this energy? What am I going to do with this gift that I've been given or that I've found a way to take for myself? That's kind of what discontent is to me. You know, and I'm going to, I'm going to extend it a little further in that. Um, I find that my body tells me just as much as my brain tells me. Mm. So kind of the 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 uh, the brain and our body. So we have neurons in our in our gut, our chest, and in our head. And you know, just as many in our gut and our chest as in our head. And I find that, or and and maybe you, you I'm sure you've felt this also. You ever like meet somebody? Let's say you go out to dinner with somebody, and then you come home and you think, you know. I don't really feel good about myself for some reason. Mm-hmm. And yep. I, and you don't consciously know why, but just the person rubbed you the wrong way or, or, you know, a job didn't really feel that good or an interview didn't feel that good. Like your, your body often will tell you before your conscious brain tells you. And for me, discontentment at a job or with people or a group uh, kind of comes from my body first. Like I'll feel, I'll literally feel sick. Yeah. That's great. I like that. I, I had a one week job as a telemarketer when I was 19 years old. And uh, my, my body told me right away, like, like, this is a terrible thing. Like, I just I felt sick. I felt like, you know, just just sort of like I had to call somebody on the phone and like try to harass them, you know, to get them to purchase something. And obviously they hung up on me as they should have done. Right. But it was like, you know, I just knew like there was no getting over that. It wasn't going to get better. You know, like in the second hour of, of you know, calling random people, it wasn't going to get better the second day. You know, and after a week, I quit, which was longer than most people lasted, it seemed. And I, I had an experience once where I had a job at a private equity firm and potentially I could have made a lot of money, but I didn't really like the people I was working with. I didn't really like the boss that much. And one time I was walking to lunch downstairs. This was right on Wall Street. And I literally and this had never happened to me before, I fell to the ground. Like, I fell mm. straight down. I was just mm. walking along, and then I just fell straight down in a vertical line. And by the end of the day, I couldn't even walk. And so I took a day, couple of days off from work, and then I went back to work. And I was in the me- middle of a meeting that I had set up, actually, and there was a bunch of people around a conference table, and I just felt sick. So I said I excused myself. I said I had to go to the bathroom. And instead of going to the bathroom, I walked to the elevator I took the 60 floors down to the, you know, bottom floor. I walked to the subway. I took a train home 70 miles north of the city. And I just simply never went back to work and never returned their calls ever again. Great story. Sometimes you just have to, like, listen Uh to what what your body is telling you. And I've never suffered for it. Like, I've here I am doing this pot, doing what I love to do. I never suffered for for doing that. If, If you follow kind of the. 
the instincts for a quest, you know, even though there might be some pain along the way, like with anything, we're not intended to be happy all the time. But uh, I think it works out better for you when you when you follow those those gut instincts from the body. Excellent. That's a great story. I don't think most people would have done it that way. Right. Most people would have just continued to struggle. You know, most people would have said there's something wrong with me. I should go to the doctor and get things checked out. I should exercise more. And they would look for like these external solutions um, that were basically just addressing the symptoms as opposed to actually, you know, correctly identifying like here's the problem. The problem is this job sucks or, you know, whatever. It's not what I'm supposed to be doing. How can I leave it, you know, right now? So and here you are now. You refer to this. I mean, there's there's kind of this struggle in everybody between feelings of scarcity and feelings of abundance. And I think you always have to err on the side of abundance and have kind of an element of of faith that it will be there if you're always doing your best and trying your hardest uh, and not you know running away from every opportunity. You're going to find more abundance than scarcity. And so. Mm-hmm. Better to get rid of the scarcity feelings, you know, which which occur in your body first. Yeah. I mean, I would say even regardless of the outcome, right, regardless of what's ha- what's going to happen, because I agree that most of the time when you you know embrace this Im- abundance mentality and you choose to live with that, then probably good things are going to happen, you know, at least over a range of time. But I would say even if not, like, what's the alternative? Do you really want to to, to embrace that that model of scarcity? That that's a great point. What's the alternative? Like, are you just going to live your life miserable? Um, well, well, let me ask you about that because this occurs in the in the in the next quest chapter, which is you know you say everyone has a calling and follow your passion. Do you really think everyone has a specific or a unique calling? I think what I said was was follow your own passion. You know, I try to actually emphasize that word own. I did say everyone has a calling. You're right. Um, but I, I don't necessarily think you know, everyone should you know, follow their passion or their bliss all the time. I, I think the, whole, the key point is let's, let's really figure out what, what is your passion as opposed to something that's, that's prescribed or something that's imposed on you, as you said at the beginning of the, of the podcast. Um, does everyone have a calling? I don't know. You know that's an interesting topic. Um, I don't know if I, if I you know, fully explored that to the extent you know, that, I, that I should, I guess. You know, maybe I have like a, a self-selection bias because I tend to talk to interesting people, you know, doing interesting things. And those are the stories that I want to highlight for my community. But when I go out and say, like, I'm going to study, you know, quests and adventures, like, what's your what's your quest? What's your adventure? Or even if you don't use those words, quest and adventure, like, what are you excited about? I guess I do find kind of when you when you talk with people, maybe not everybody's found it yet, but I like to kind of peel away the layers and. And, you know, sometimes there's like a superficial thing that comes forward and I'm just as guilty of this as anybody else. But then if you can maybe, you know, get a little bit deeper, I do think there everyone has at least something or maybe some things that, you know, matter to them more than anything else. And and, and how do like, you find how do you find what those things are? I think, yeah, you know, I'd, I'd be curious how you answer it. I guess I think you find it through exploration, um, through experimentation, through being willing to do things differently through thinking not only about um, what are you excited about, like what what you, what are you really into, um, that's kind of a surface level examination. I think is helpful in the beginning, but maybe going a little bit deeper and saying, okay, what are you what are you bothered by, and what are you irritated by, what troubles you about the world, you know, what are you pissed off about? Um, I feel like sometimes that line of thinking can lead, you know, maybe to something more specific than just thinking like, hey, what are you what are you excited about today? You know, it's interesting though because some people. There's sort of positive and negative ways to look at that. Like some people, um, you know, are very upset, let's say, how the government 
runs mm-hmm. its business. So they devote their lives to protesting the government. And that, you know, more often than not, just makes them angry and they have right. no impact and, and so on. So there, there's kind of a danger to that by by focusing on what's pissing you off. Well, I think the the, the way you alleviate the, the danger of that problem is, you, you know, you find a way you find a way to create some change that you're able to create. Right. If you're if you're discontented by the government in general, you know, like with this this big G or something, I just don't like the government. Then, then you're right. I mean, maybe it's uh, maybe it's challenging. But isn't there something specific? Isn't there something that you can do? I mean, I, I guess that's kind of what I I'm, I'm really interested in solutions. You know, not just in in protest, but you know, how can we really, really, truly create change in some regard? So maybe it's but, about finding that. You know, I think also, and you and you refer to this a lot of times in your book. People have quests that are kind of not the, not what you would expect, you know, you know, like when you're a kid, you want to be like an astronaut or a fireman or a superhero or whatever, mm-hmm. or at least I did. Um, but then later on in life, your, your kind of interests become more subtle and more kind of uh, that you refine them a little more. So you have one person who wants to, who, who had a quest of it knitting 10,000 hats. Right. Um, you know, how does someone come come to a quest like that and what's what's the purpose of a quest like that yeah no this is, this is a great segue i, I liked i liked that story that's a, a woman named robin um because in the beginning you know like when i was like kind of casting a net i was like who am i going to write about you know i heard all these really just uh, amazing phenomenal in the, in the literal sense of the word stories um i heard of this guy who's speaking of speaking of being discontented you know he was really troubled by this oil sp- oil spill in the San Francisco Bay Area, and he became an activist. He took a vow of silence for 17 years, and then he kind of walked across America. He didn't use any motorized transports, and he had this vow of silence, right? So that was his form of protest. You know, he couldn't change everything, but, you know, he did create a lot of change in his way. So I thought that was a pretty amazing story. But then, like, you know, fortunately, I work with with smart editors and other people, and uh, my editor said, that's a great story that no one's ever going to relate to. Because they're going to hear that and they think like that's incredible. Like I never want to do that. Like I don't want to take a vow of silence. You know, for seventeen well, well, years. Well, but, but at the same time, though, I, so I read that story and I said uh-huh. to myself, okay, I'm obviously not going to do that. But the idea of saying less words per day and really right, right. thinking and observing the uh, things around you, I can take elements of that quest and apply it to my life, and I get inspiration from that from reading a story about a guy like that. Yeah, well, cool. Well, thanks for saying that. I mean, that's that's why I kept it in the book, you know. But I mean, I think the the point was like, let's let's try to make sure everything is relatable. People can uh, you know adopt one principle from each story or something. So I'm glad that that, that it worked in that regard. But you ask about the the ten thousand hats woman. You know, she was a, a knitter, a crafter. She just enjoyed you know making things, and then she started this project of making hats. And and at first, it wasn't ten thousand. It was just like I'm going to make a bunch of hats. But one of the parameters of a quest is it has to be something specific. It has to be something measurable. You know, when I started started traveling, I was just a traveler, and that was fine. But there are lots of people traveling, and there there wasn't a lot of structure to that. And then when I kind of hit on the aspect of of creating the parameters and, and making it a quest and then imposing the deadline of my 35th birthday. That's, that's when I got much more excited about it. That's how it kind of created purpose and meaning in my life. Um, so for her, she thought I'm going to make a thousand hats, but then she realized that would take like a year or two. So that's, that's a lot, but you know, she wanted something more challenging. So that's why she came up with 10,000 hats. You know, you know, there's something, there's something very uh, almost uh, Jungian about this notion of a quest. It's like the arc, the the arc of a hero. So you know, or the journey of a hero. So you kind of created this quest for yourself, which 
it doesn't even matter what the end result is. It needs to be sufficiently difficult that you're going to find hurdles along the way. People are going to resist you. And it's going to be something that's going to kind of uh, define your life, make it unique. And hopefully, uh, and in most cases, at least in the cases in your book, provide some value to others. So, so that's what you did. You created this quest for yourself that uh, was obviously unique, was obviously difficult, um, certainly you've created a lot of value for others because you've become this amazing resource on how to travel cheaply and all over the place. Um, but, uh, you know, what were some hurdles along the way that you encountered other than kind of being deported and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, I'm glad you, I'm glad you put that, um, you know, perimeter around it because the greatest challenges had nothing to do with being deported or not getting the visa or I had a car accident somewhere like that kind of stuff. Those were external challenges, you know, and they mattered. But I think maybe the greater challenge is just just continuously evaluating my motivations and making sure that I'm sufficiently self-inspired, you know, to pursue the quest. And when I say self-inspired, I mean, you know, I, I continually asking myself, OK, why am I doing this? You know, I began this quest before I was any sort of public figure, before I wrote books, you know, before I had the blog, like no one knew who I was. And, and I was just traveling on my own and I believed in this and. I was doing it for my own challenge, you know, because I, when, once I started thinking about that goal, I couldn't get it out of my head. You know, it was just like we said earlier, it was this crazy idea. I couldn't stop thinking about it. So I guess, you know, as things changed a little bit and developed this following and I started to have various career, you know, not pressures, but just career opportunities that were good. Um, it was kind of like, okay, um, I have to say no to a lot of that stuff in order to keep, you know, traveling two weeks a month. Um, you know, to places like Bangladesh or Eritrea or whatever. And in the end, I'm really glad I made the choice, right, to keep traveling and to do that. I mean, that's that's what it was all about. But I think maybe if um, if my motivations hadn't hadn't been correct or if I'd gotten skewed somewhere, which I did see happen with some people, um, then I think that would have that would have been a dangerous thing. So that's what I tried to be mindful of. Well, well, how did you keep yourself? I mean, I'm sure there were there were points where you said, gosh, all right, I hit 100 countries. Yeah. I don't really feel like doing the final 92 and I've got other yeah. things to do. How did you keep yourself on track? Or or, or why do you keep yourself on track? Like yeah. Maybe at the age of 30, you might have said, you know what, I'm going to start having kids now. And yeah. that's going to keep me off track for a while. Yeah, fantastic question. I think if um, I, I think it was all about the timing, to be like brutally honest with you. If, um, if I had felt that way at country number 70 or number 80 or something, I think it would have been really hard, you know, to keep going. And, and maybe I would have, maybe I wouldn't have. Um, but, you know, 193 countries, I would say it was probably around 150 or so when I started feeling like, okay, I'm, I'm not sick of this. You know, I'm, I'm still, you know, enjoying most of it. But I have seen a lot of the world. Um, you know, a lot of this process, you know, of going from place to place is, is pretty similar. You know, both the joys and the struggles. Um, you know, if it wasn't for the goal, maybe I would just, I don't know if I'd stop, but maybe I'd slow down a little bit. But I guess I feel like at a certain point, momentum kind of carried me over. And so at a, at a certain point, I do think there's value in saying like, okay, you know, hey, we're almost there. Like, let's keep going. You know, even if some parts of it can be a little monotonous or something, um, you know, let, let's keep going because I'm at 150, 160, like can't stop now, you know. But I think if I felt that way, if I felt that way at like country 90, not necessarily the best answer. You know, and, and there's some um, kind of extra benefits towards achieving your goal. So if you had stopped at 100, that's kind of neat that you, that here's a person who went to 100 right. countries. But if you visit every country, then that's a book. You know, yeah, there's, actual, sure, sure. there's actual monetary value that you can get out of achieving certain goals like that. 
Yeah. And I also just think not even the, the monetary value, but like just thinking long term, like when I, when I look back on my life, you know, it's always a helpful thing, right? If you're trying to evaluate a decision and you've got this idea and like, should I stop or should I keep going? I, I, I knew there's no way in the world I would say like, yeah, when I look back on my life, I'm gonna look at this time period and say like, oh, I went to a bunch of countries, you know, and there was like 193 countries and I made it to 182 of them. And that was great. You know, like there's no, there's no way in the world I would want that. You know, I would say, why yeah, did you not no, that keep going? Yeah, exactly. Like, like if you went to 182, you yeah. would actually be like an extreme disappointment. Exactly. It would be terrible. I mean, can you imagine like in the bio, like this guy went to almost every country, you know, in right. the world. It's just been to 182 countries. All right. But yeah, so what? Right. Uh, not so what, but you know, um, oh, true. you, you say, uh, in chapter five, not everyone needs to believe in your dream, but you do. But mm. let me ask you about that. So you're married. I'm going to, uh, you know, you, you mentioned your, your wife's name is Jolie. Mm. Uh, was Jolie totally on board with your quest? I don't think she was totally on board. I think it's, I mean, again, to get be like truthfully and, and completely honest, right? Like, I think it was hard for her in lots of ways. Um, she was extremely supportive. Um, so I don't mean to say that she wasn't on board. Right. But it was hard for her. And I was away a lot. And, you know, she, she's she go with you most of the time or not most of the time, not most of the time. I mean, and she is a traveler herself. She's been to a lot of countries. She's been to maybe 50 or so countries. Um, and we, we lived together in West Africa uh, when I was we were both volunteering there. You, know, you for met about, there. Uh, we didn't meet there. We actually met in the States, but then moved to Sierra Leone and Liberia. But that was a long time ago. And most of the quest was was on my own. And was she ever like, uh, like jealous, like, oh my gosh, Chris is going to meet somebody in Sierra Leone or, uh, or were you ever jealous thinking back of what she was doing in, in Oregon or how yeah. did your relationship handle this? Sure. I mean, I guess for the first part, you know, I, I don't want to speak for her. You'd have to ask her that question. Uh, you know, for me, I think there were, there were certainly struggles in, in, you know, living apart essentially half the time or at least maybe a third of the time. And at times the relationship was strained. And if it was strained, it was probably my fault, you know, and that um, I, I guess I also do believe, though, that it's OK if you're a, a couple or whatever your situation is. I, I think it's OK to have your own dreams. You know, I think as a couple or a family, hopefully you're building a shared story together and you have these experiences and, and things that you're working toward together and things that you share together. But you're also both individuals. And, you know, it's OK to, to have your own dream. You know, also, there's a story in the book about a, a guy who set out to, to cycle around the world and, you know, everything was going great. And he was cycling in the Sudan and he was in all these crazy places and he overcame all these environmental, you know, difficulties. And then all of a sudden he encountered the biggest difficulty of all was what he met a girl and he fell in love. And then it was just like, what do I do? Do I stay with her? Do I keep the, continue the quest? And he, he answered that in different ways, you know, throughout uh, the story. But the quote he said was the thing that he was wrestling with was, can a dream have only one owner? You know, if this is my dream, can I share this dream with someone or am I the sole owner of this of this dream? And I think different people will answer that in different ways. You know, I think also um, it, it, it's OK to change. You know, a dream doesn't necessarily have to have one exit. A maze doesn't have mm. to have one exit either. Sure. Uh, so someone could be on a quest and then the quest can be modified and there could be a new quest. Yep. Totally agree. You know, and then that's that's why you ask yourself, like, you know, what's the highest value here? You know, is the highest value, you know, completing it according to the original terms or is the highest value that I am being changed and I, I am, you know, improving myself somehow and, and maybe making a difference for other people through the quest. And therefore, it's OK if I need to modify it, you know. By the way, with that guy, how did he bicycle through Colombia without getting kidnapped? Uh, I don't know if he went to Colombia. You know, he okay. wasn't trying to, like, cycle through every country. It was just a bunch of countries. I forget the exact 
Okay, so he sort of figured out his route around the world and did that. Yeah, but he went to a bunch of random places. I mean, I don't don't know about Colombia, but again, he was in Sudan. Uh, He was in a bunch of Eastern European places, and he had lots of of struggles, but some good experiences too. You know, I sort of feel like your, your quest became not necessarily let's hit every country around the world, but you became, you, you had this kind of umbrella quest of let's show people the value of a quest. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's it like sounds, a meta quest. Yeah. I was going to say, I was going to use that same exact word and say, it sounds kind of meta. Um, again, that wasn't strategic. That was something that just kind of, kind of developed along the way. And uh, in the beginning, it was just like, oh, I like to travel. Oh, let's let's go a bunch of places. Oh, let's turn it into a quest. You know, I don't think I even used that word quest, you know, in, in the very beginning. But, uh, but I and- love the word quest because it has this sort of mythological overtone. Like it makes me feel like, you know, this is something that's that's almost mythical. It's larger than life. Mm-hmm. And, and you go through so many examples of completely different kinds of quests that you show that this is really possible for all ranges of life. So, so, so let's, so, so I'm kind of um, cycling it back to the beginning. Like, you know, we talked about what is a quest. What's the first step towards embarking on a quest? I think the first step is, is finding some packaging for this thing that you love to do or this thing that bothers you or, you know, whatever that practice is going to become. I think, you know, finding a wrapper for it. And what I mean by that is saying, okay, you know, in my case, I love the travel, but I was so much more energized by it once I found the packaging and said, oh, you know, how many countries are there in the world? And could I could I possibly feasibly, you know, at some point in my life actually go to all of them? And how much time would it take and how much money would it cost? And what would be the other challenges along the way? You mentioned relational challenges, other stuff, logistics, et cetera. You know, I'm really attracted to figuring out, like, how, do, how does one take like this broad notion and then translate it into something not only meaningful and purposeful, but also possible. So I, I feel like the more you can think about that, um, the better. I mean, something I noticed that was in common with a lot of these people is they all were really big into writing lists, into making lists, into like checking things off, into you know, simplifying you know, big concepts into next steps. What is, you know, if I, if I want to do this big thing tomorrow, or if I want to do this big thing in 10 years, what's the step tomorrow and after yeah. that? You know, it, it's interesting because, you know, a lot of people say, and I, I've discussed this with other people on other podcasts, a lot of people say ideas are a dime a dozen, but execution mm. is the hard part. Sure. And I don't quite believe that because execution is just a different type of idea. So mm. you have the idea, okay, I'm going to visit 193 countries or 192 countries. But then you also have the idea, okay, I'm going to look up what those countries are. And there's a certain mm-hmm. pleasure in taking these very, very simple next steps that aren't necessarily hard. Like, for instance, you challenge people um, in, I think it's in the art of nonconformity or in one of the manifestos, uh, come up, you know, memorize the names of every country and the prime minister or president or king of that country or the capital of that country. And, you know, there's, there's certain pleasurable steps you could take on the way of a Mm -hmm. quest that again, may lead you to visit 193 countries or may lead you somewhere else. Right. Yeah. I completely agree. That's that's a lot. Of, that's how this thing developed is I started learning more about the world and where is Eritrea? You know, how does one get to Pakistan and and figuring each step out was a little mini mini puzzle um, in which, you know, I, I found pleasurable and enjoying. I also love this quote from Coca Chanel in uh, chapter five of your book. Uh, the most courageous act is to think for yourself aloud. So mm-hmm. to actually stand up and say it. 
Yeah, I feel like at a certain point, um, you know, stating the goal, whatever your goal is, and however you choose to state it, um, well, you know, whether it's online or something for the world, or I don't just for friends and family, I do think that's significant. I think that, you know, creates this built in accountability. Um, it creates this broadcast. Um, and it maybe it has effects that you're not even aware of, right? Because maybe in stating whatever that goal is, there's somebody out there you know, perhaps you, you don't even know who's going to be impacted in that by that in some small way. And maybe it helps them think about what they're doing. And, you know, you never know how our lives are connected, but stating it out loud or publishing it in some fashion is, is helpful. I think that's, you know, I'm actually being inspired just by this podcast. I think that's incredibly uh, helpful. Um, it's given me some ideas of something I want to do now. But, um, you know, I think, you know, an, a common argument I get along the lines of choose yourself and i'm sure you get this because you because you wrote it is you have this um quote here you can have the life you want no matter who you are and a mm -hmm. lot of people say well i can't you know try doing that if you have a mortgage or you have kids or whatever yeah. now i have all of these things sure. um i don't have a mortgage but i did but uh uh it's you know you you basically say no matter who you are is the mm -hmm. key point and so let's this is going to take us back to the hundred dollar startup for a second but how do you start setting up your life in such a way that you can go on a quest that's different from the the average nine to five life that people live? I think it starts by understanding, you know, what it is you want to do and what it is that you're working toward. And then, you know, constructing your life in such a fashion that eventually makes that possible. And yes, there may be barriers. Yes, there may be obstacles, right? Um, but you obviously had some element of free time to listen to this podcast you know, or to read up on some of these concepts or to explore, you wouldn't have come to this whole conversation or this, this realm of possibility if you weren't discontented, as we said earlier, or if you weren't seeking something more, right? Um, and we right, all... Right, so, 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 and, and I want to interrupt. I, I apologize, Chris. People accuse me of interrupting all the time, but no, I get fine. really uh, fascinated by every part <laughs> of this. Um, you know, a lot of people... The, the first thing is figuring out how to use their time more efficiently. Not uh, people think the first problem is money. Really, the first problem is how to use your time more efficiently. And so, like you mentioned, people have time to listen to this podcast. But also, if you if you and you mentioned this in your book, if you stop watching TV and you stop doing, you know, reading the news, you're going to have an extra four or five hours a day if you're the average American in which to create an online business or do things that, you know, can support your family or, or do all sorts of things, achieve, you know, knit a hat or whatever. Yeah. I mean, I, no, I agree. That's fine. And I, I guess I think that everybody's busy. Like we're all busy. Like that's just the, the, you know, the new normal or something, but we also make time for what's important to us. And, and there's nothing wrong with watching TV. If somebody's really into TV, that's great. Right. But everything involves trade-offs. Everything involves choices. So I guess if there's, there's a certain time in your life, when it's really important to make some changes. If there's a certain time in your life where you're like, I've got to get out of this job, or you know, I do have these obligations and responsibilities, I don't know, you know how to move forward, but somehow I've got to escape and find that freedom or whatever, then, then you have to you know, find a way to, as you said, use that time efficiently, even if it's a limited period of time. I mean, I, I like stories of people who've started a business you know, even while they're working a full-time job with a family or something, just doing it on the nights and weekends, because in some ways they often do a better job than people who have 30 or 40 hours a week to work on it because they can only do what's important. They can only do what really matters as opposed to wasting time doing a lot of other things, which I'm often guilty of. And, and just as an example, the very first business I started that was successful, 
Um, I had a full-time job and I started the business on the side. I stayed at the full-time job for at least, I think it was 18 months Mm -hmm. while I ran the business on the side. And ultimately, when I finally left my full-time job, I had about a dozen employees at the full-time business, at least a dozen clients. I mean, I was really scared to leave the full-time job, but it did involve nights and weekends. Mm -hmm. And I had um, a wife in the beginnings of a, a family when I when I did this. So everybody's like you say, there, there's a certain sacrifice in the quest, but that's how you do it. Like a lot of people now live in this uh, entitlement mode where they think, oh, I have this idea. I should raise a lot of the money from a venture capitalist so I can quit my right. job and pursue that idea. Right. But that just I've never actually seen that happen. Yeah. It's another way of looking for someone to do something for you. And I understand it. it's common because you, that, that's the mentality, right? You, you maybe hear stories of this happening, or at least you hear a mythology of it happening for somebody else. You think this is the pattern that I need to jump into. Somewhere someone's going to bestow this business on me, right? Or this alternative way of life or something. Uh, but that's, as you said, that's not how it happens. And, and it is difficult. I don't want to say that it's easy, right? When we say like everyone can have the life they want, I, I never want to bullshit anyone and say like this is the easiest thing in the world. You know, if you're working for your freedom and your independence, you know, I think it's worthwhile. I think it's hugely valuable. I think it's the best thing you could ever do for yourself, right? But I would never say it's easy. Right. You know, and it's funny. It, it's, it's, I like the phrase working for your freedom as opposed to breaking out of prison because mm. there's, no, there's no locks on the prison doors. Right, uh, right. They're all open, but you, you do have to work for the freedom um, to get out there. Um, and, and, you know, and I, you also have this quote in the same chapter about the no matter who you are. You, you have this quote from Eleanor Roosevelt, do one thing every day that scares you. So, so what are, and, and I think that's a good way to practice kind of having that, um, I don't know if it's like an, an endorphin rush or something, mm-hmm. that, 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 that fear that you're going to encounter frequently while on a quest but you can practice that muscle by doing one thing a day that scares you right now. So what are some typical things that you could tell people to do? You know, one of the stories I like from actually from the first book, I've been telling this for a few years now, but I, I continue to think of it as this guy in North Carolina who was a little bit discontented. He had this full-time job that wasn't super excited about. He had a family, lots of obligations, wanted to create change. But again, like, you know, I'm super busy. How do I do it? So he just started this whole series of life experiments and the series of life experiments were exactly what you said, like one thing a day that scares you or that challenges you or doesn't even have to scare you, but it's just a little disruptive to your routine. So he started you know, like visiting an art museum at his lunch break, which he had never been to. Um, you know, the art museum was just down the street, but for some reason he'd never been inside. So he went there and then he took up a photography class and then he did start experimenting with online business and started traveling a little bit more for his work that he hadn't, you know, it's kind of just like this whole series of, of steps and exploration. And eventually he did end up quitting his job and going into a full-time consulting practice that he set up, but he actually traces the outcome to that initial, you know, decision to kind of disrupt his routine and to say, I'm going to do, you know, different things every day, even if they're small and we'll see where that goes. And, and what are some of the things that you do? Like, what are you going to do today (laughs) to scare yourself? Yeah, great question. Um, you know, actually, I, I worry that my life often becomes occupied by routine, James, uh, even though, you know, like I'm doing my own thing, you know, making my you, own decisions. You've been to 193 countries and you're worried that your life is going to be occupied by routine. That's kind Absolutely. of funny. I'm totally scared of that. Yep. Uh, I have a pretty, you know, standardized life. I don't know what your routine is like, but I, I tend to do a lot of the same things every day. And I guess generally, I think that's good because it supports the other work that I want to do. But uh, you now some of my friends do give me a hard time because you know, I go to bed same time every night, 
usually go to the same place for breakfast every morning, you know, have these certain patterns. So I don't know if I'm going to disrupt anything today, but I'm, I'm getting ready to go on this 40 city tour, you know, to meet people in different cities. So that will be that will be a little disruptive. Let, let's talk about the hundred dollar startup, because I want to give just direct practical advice. You're at your cubicle job. You have no clue what to do next, but you but but and you're you're going to make the commitment. OK, no more TV at night, no more news. Mm-hmm. I'm going to have the time. How can I get started on the hundred dollar startup? How can I how can I make some money? Yep. Let's think of a topic. Let's think about something that you're good at. If you're not sure what you're good at, think about um, the questions that people ask you all the time. Are people always asking you about fantasy football? Are they always asking you about you know a road trip? Are they always asking you about digital photography? There's, like everyone's an expert at something. I really do believe that. Um, it or, or anybody has... can be an expert at something with just a little bit of work. Sure. Because sure. Yeah, let, that's good. Good modification. Let, let, let me give you. An, let's give a specific example. So mm-hmm. I always say there's a there's a trillion dollars in student loan debt. Mm-hmm. Obviously, students aren't making enough money to pay for this after they graduate. So this is a big problem that's about to happen in society. Mm-hmm. So helping people, you know, modify their student loans, it's a simple matter of doing some some Google research or Wikipedia or whatever, research in the, in the law about how they can modify their student loans. They could, someone could put together a 100-page report. Here's 100 ways to modify your student loans. Okay, a, so you've done that work. You put together a report. What's next? Yep, no, that's a perfect example because uh, I would say further that it's a good example because there's demand for this yes. and it's something that if people purchase it they're going to you know and they they take steps to, you know to apply the information they're actually going to save a lot of money right so there's a very very clear benefit to it right so let's say you're going to sell the report for 50 bucks but they mm-hmm. have but they but they're going to reduce their student loans from $50,000 to $30,000 so right. for 50 bucks you save them $20,000 so there's, there's clearly like an arbitrage that 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 works Right. So that's a huge need. Hopefully someone listening, you know, to this will actually go and do that. So then they're going to write it up, right? They're going to spend a lot of time writing this up. Well, not, you know, they're going to spend a month, let's say, right? A month and their nights and weekends, you know, an hour or so a day, you know, writing this report. And, you know, then they're going to write some kind of letter or sale. They're going to write some kind of offer for it, you know, and there's lots of different examples of that. like in my books, probably in your stuff too, of how to do that. They're going to write the offer, then they're going to publish that in some fashion. If they don't know how to publish it in some fashion, they're going to spend another two hours, let's say, learning how to do that. They're going to spend two hours learning how to set up a WordPress site, you know, something super basic, doesn't need to be fancy. Or they're going to go to elance.com and pay someone $100 or a couple hundred dollars to make something decent for them. Would you agree so far? Yes. Okay, great. And, and, and I'm also going to say, um, well, well, maybe you're about to say it. Go ahead. No, I don't know. I don't know what I was going to say next. I was going to say, uh, then they're going to, so then it's, then it's going to be published. It's going to be available. Then the whole question is, how do they get the word out? Well, I think they're going to do two things. I think, first of all, they're going to start with people they know. And um, just as everyone is an expert at something or can be an expert at something, as you said, um, everyone knows someone, right? And there is no, you know, there's no blog fairy or publishing fairy, just as there's no one who's going to give you venture capital. You know, like we all start with with a limited network and that's fine. Um, when I started writing my blog, my grandma was one of the first five readers, you know, um, and that's great. So you're going to start with everybody you know and you're going to say like, hey, I've done this project. Like, do you know somebody who has this need, right? Do you have a, you know, a friend or somebody who's a student or is a parent of a student? Um, can you help me get the word out? And then maybe I would also look at other resources like are there blogs writing about this, right? Are there other media articles writing about this? And then I would start, you know, spending a little bit of time each day because we don't have a lot of time, a little bit of time on this connecting component, on this component of how can I kind of get the word out about this message? And there's lots of other stuff we could do after that, but that's where I would start. 
you know, I think it's really important this idea of starting with the people you know. Mm-hmm. I think too many sites, uh, too many, um, I don't even want to call them entrepreneurs, but too many people who make uh, websites think, okay, I'm going to build it and mm-hmm. search engines are going to find me and suddenly yeah. I'm going to get flooded and my servers are going to crash and so on. <laughs> um, but I think I, with every successful business I've started or been involved with, uh, it's always started off with your your connections and your network. And some mm-hmm. people say, oh, well, I have no network. That is almost never the case. Yeah. Everybody's got some network that they can use or or with a couple months worth of work, they can build that network. So I think you've got to start off with with who you know, because because they're going to be your first customers and, mm-hmm. and they're going to have advice on who your second customer should be. Mm-hmm. And then so I would say as soon as you can, as quickly as possible, you're going to get to that first sale. And that first sale may not mean a, a great deal of money. Maybe, like we said, it's $50 or something compared to a month's worth of work that you've done to put this together. But what I've seen over and over is that first sale is, is super empowering. When you have that first like PayPal notification that comes through and like you have sold $50, you know, you sold $50 worth of this product or service to somebody that you don't know, that is super exciting. And then you go to that person and say, hey, th- thanks so much. You know, James, for picking up this report, I hope it changes your life. You know, can you give me some feedback on it? Can you let me know how it was? If there's somebody that also needs this, will you send them, you know, send it to them? And and I feel like um, a, a lot of really successful and sustainable businesses, small lifestyle businesses grow through that small army of remarkable people. Yeah, very true. You know, um, uh, and you mentioned, I think it was in the Art of Nonconformity, you mentioned you can go to a site e-junkie.com. Um, to quickly set up an order form, uh, you know, so suddenly right away you have a product, you could sell it and call all your friends and see who's going to buy it and see if any of their friends are going to buy it. And then you also mention the first thousand dollars you make feels really great. Mm-hmm. And this, and then when you go from a thousand dollars to $5,000, it's not five times as hard that for whatever reason, it's just twice as hard. Right. And if you have a scalable business, you could just keep going from that. And it's not to say you're going to make millions. There might not be millions in demand, but all we're looking for is to make enough that you could quit your job uh, and and have more time for your quest or whatever it is you want to do, your freedom. Yeah, absolutely. Even if you don't quit your job right away, even if it's even if it's not, you know, sustainable enough to you can, to you can do that. I mean, I just feel that there's so much, uh, so much of an empowerment in earning our own income. You know, I've always felt that, you know, there's this classic quote about, uh, an entrepreneur is someone who will work 24 hours a day for themselves in order to avoid one hour, you know, working one hour a day for someone else. Um, and that's how I've always been. Like, I've always been like, I, whatever it, it can be like to do things on my own, I'm, I'm going to do that because it is so, so freeing and so empowering, as I said. Yeah. And, you know, and you never know what you're going to find. Like I have, I have, I know one guy, he, um, his first product was he was selling uh, database access to a database of houses that were rent to own. So mm-hmm. some people want to rent, some people want to own, some people who want to own don't have the money, so they want to rent until they own the place. But mm-hmm. there's no easy database for that. So he collected a database of these homes. Mm-hmm. But then he realized that many of the people who um, would want access to this database, the reason they had to rent to own is because they had issues with their credit scores. Mm-hmm. So he would then sell... Uh, credit repair services to them. And that's how he made his money. So, right. so this is a series of identifying inefficiencies in the marketplace or uh, identifying a need that people have that he's able to, to meet. Uh, and then, he, you know, one thing leads to another and then 
he's found another business essentially. Right. And, and what, what happened was he had zero investment. Um, but then with his first set of revenues, he plowed that back into, uh, Google ads, you know, mm-hmm. Oh, do you need a rent to own house or something right. like that? You know, Google ads, Facebook ads, he had a bunch of different ad networks he used and, and people can search on, on blogs. What are the best ways to do, uh, you know, what, what are the most inefficient ad networks out there right now? Um, mm-hmm. cause it changes all the time. And, uh, and he just kept – he's still to this day, he's just – he's plowing the money back in month after month. He's building up every month. And last month he hit his first $250,000 revenue month. So It's incredible. Great story. Yeah, yeah it's, it is a good story. And again, he, he was a $100 startup. So he, mm-hmm. I don't think he had any investment at all ever. Um, so so it, it is a good story. I don't know if he has any quest other than to make – a hundred million dollars, but right. you know, that's a quest also. Yeah. You know, that's true. And sometimes I think the quest evolves, you know, sometimes I think after our initial needs are met, you know, in the beginning, like we have this desperation, right? We have this need, like I've got to like create that freedom or whatever for myself. And, and that maybe is the most important thing that you should focus on. I totally get it. But then after, you know, that's kind of set up and, and things are okay. You know, is it really a quest to make you know, more money once you have all the money that you need. I don't know. That's a whole other other topic. I would say a lot of people will find greater happiness, you know, once their needs are met by maybe focusing on something different and focusing on either that question of legacy that we talked about or just on something, you know, totally apart from the world of money that they they want to pursue and, and accomplish for themselves. You know, I think I think it, it's something true also. Um, and so now I'm going to say the exact opposite, that, that mm-hmm. money is often a byproduct of the quest. Yeah. So, so, for instance, you achieved your quest of 193 countries, but now it allows you to write a book. It allows you to do speaking engagements. It might allow you to do some consulting. It might allow you to sell an information product about traveling. You, you also run a conference. I should mention the, the World Domination Summit, which, which you know, may result in some profits. People mm-hmm. continue you know, m- money becomes just an a- when you love your your quest. Money mm-hmm. is just an afterthought. I and I'll just tell you my own personal experience. Sure. Whenever I was, I've had many periods in my life where I was obsessively worried about money, and then often to solve my worry about money, I would do the obvious thing, which is I would I would start a business that I th- would want to be successful. But once I started a business that I loved, I never thought about money again. Because doing something I loved that actually provided value for others, I knew deep down that money was going to just simply be a byproduct of it. And I can now focus on my customers and my audience and my users and whoever because the, 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 the business itself or the activity itself was what was giving me pleasure and solving my anxiety. Mm-hmm. You know, and you, you mentioned this, you talk about stand-up comedians and how like Jerry Seinfeld, who's who's worth eight hundred million, you know, he'll go out at night and still perform stand-up comedy because he wants to continue improving his craft. Like he loves stand-up comedy. Yeah, he's made that his quest, essentially, like the continual refinement of this specific routine that he does over and over. I thought it was really fascinating that he he goes to these small clubs and he does it and he talks about how if um if he misses like more than a week or two of doing a set, even though he's been doing it his entire life, he said he compared it to being a tennis player or something like you could take a day or two off as a professional tennis player. But if you start, if you take more than just a couple of days off, like you can notice this subtle difference, you know, he feels like uh, he, he sees this difference if he doesn't, you know, keep doing this. Um, so he was really driven by craft. Well, well, it's interesting because you, you mentioned um, you write a thousand words a day. 
um, every day. And I, I do, I do something similar. I'll write anywhere between, um, 500 and 3000 words a day, uh, mm-hmm. every single day. And if I miss two days in a row, I can feel it in my head. Mm-hmm. Not that I won't have ideas to write about, but when I'm, co- when it, when it actually comes to connecting two words together, I yeah. won't feel the same strength of the words like I'll have to get back into I'll have to rebuild that muscle you know because it's it's atrophied slightly right. and it, it's really important to constantly um stick with your craft and again money is a byproduct of doing that because you become one of the best in the world at doing it right so for some of the listeners maybe they maybe they don't know how to write a thousand words a day or they sit down and try to do it or 3000 or whatever the number is, they sit down and try to do it, but it's really difficult for them. So your, your exact point is it, it's a habit that strengthens itself. Like the more you do it, the better you get at it. Um, so if, if you can't do whatever, you know, the matrix is that you hear from someone else, then you should choose your own matrix and you should say, I'm going to write 250 words a day. Right. right. And, and, Maybe I'll try. Maybe I'll try to increase that at some point, or maybe I won't. Maybe I'm just going to build this habit, and that's that's my number or whatever. Well, you know, there's there's two interesting points there because because the whole idea about habits, a habit actually should be painful in the mm. beginning. So let's say let's say you eat a donut every day, and now you want to build a, a more positive habit of not eating a donut every day. Well, at first, there's going to be extreme pain. Because your body's used to the happiness of eating a donut a day, so it's right. going to tell you, "No, what are you doing? You got to eat a do- You got to eat that donut." And so, in the very beginning, you know, you're going to feel ext- a pain of not uh, of not doing your normal routine. Right. Um, and then the other thing is about building a habit. The reason why you might want to do stand up comedy every day, or write every day, or do whatever it is every day, is because you realize, "Oh my gosh, it's so." I read beautiful writing and I want to be like that. Well, you recognize the subtleties of someone who's really mastered a craft. Like let's say Jerry Seinfeld's really mastered stand-up comedy. Well, if I were to try doing stand-up comedy, even though I love it so much, I'm going to recognize very quickly that I'm really bad at it because I'm not as good as the people I admire. But you have to go, you have to get through that period to actually build the skill, Mm -hmm. you know, and that's an important part of habit building. Sure. So, so what's, um, what's next for you? Like you, 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 obviously you, you completed this quest, you have Mm -hmm. this meta quest of kind of spreading the message about quests. Uh, but what's, what's some other things that you're working on? Well, you know, through the quest, I was changed quite a bit and, you know, I went from just, uh, you know, being this, this guy, I was just out there doing my own little thing. And then now I've got this, this fantastic community just as you do. And I've tried as much as possible to kind of put more of a focus on the community and, and maybe less on myself. And that's that's been an evolution from the beginning. Like when I first started writing, I was like, hey, I'm going to all these countries. Like, isn't this awesome? You know, and some people are like, well, that's cool. But how does that make a difference in my life? You know, very valid question. So I guess I'm just trying to to focus much more on, on that question. And I, I feel like whatever the next quest is for me will be more community focused. Uh, I'm not planning to go to the moon. For example, I don't want to go to every you know planet in the solar system. Uh, I do plan to keep traveling. I love travel, and that's a, a huge part of my life. And I'm looking forward to doing 40 cities and talking to people every night. But I guess uh, you mentioned the meta quest of talking about quests. You know, I, I do want to encourage people to live unconventional lives and whatever you know, that looks like for them. And I do want to get better at you know offering strategies for that and offering solutions and you know, showing people like, here's, here are different ways that other folks have done it. Um, so I think whatever I do is going to be aligned with that, hopefully. 
Well, and I think it's a very admirable goal, not only because, A, I think it provides a lot of pleasure to people to to kind of um, find their own path and, and follow their passion and, and do their own quest. But I think economically, we're moving towards a world where you really need to do this. And I'm not mm-hmm. a pessimist. I actually think it's the innovation in our economy that allows people to do to, to have more economic freedom on their own now. But I do think it beca- it's a necessary thing. And so I think what you're doing is uh, your, your, your quest of quests or your meta quest is, is, is very admirable. And I think we'll, we'll, we'll end up helping a lot of people, which is why I recommend not only people get your book, The Happiness of Pursuit, but I really think they should view it as a trilogy and, and also download your manifestos. You have, you have two different manifestos. Uh, wh- what are the names of them? Uh, 279 Days to Overnight Success is what we briefly discussed earlier. And then I actually got my start a few years ago by publishing something called A Brief Guide to Real Domination. So those are both free on my website. Yeah. And then, you know, one of these years, I'm going to make my way to Oregon and go to your World Domination Summit because I always hear good things about it. I would love to have you there. Do you do it every year? We do it every July. Yeah, this will be the fifth year anniversary next summer. So definitely. And how many people show up to that? Uh, it's now between three and 5,000, depending on how you count them. Oh my gosh. All right. Yeah. I want to go to this. I'm going to go. What, what, what month is it? It's always in July, usually the second, uh, second weekend in July. All right. I'm, I'm there next year. Excellent. I'm going. Please. Um, all right, Chris. Well, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. This was very inspirational. I really hope pe- not only do people buy your book, but at least think about the ideas of, you know, maybe even list 10 possible quests and just start playing around. Like, is this something I can, I can do or pursue or, or, or think about? Like, I, I really encourage people to at least think about this, not necessarily go on a, a, a deep dive tomorrow, but just start playing around with it in, in their heads because I think it's, it's very inspirational. Well, cool. Thank you so much for having me on the show. No problem. And I, I'm sure we'll meet at some point. Excellent. For more from James, check out the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network at stansberryradio.com and get yourself on the free insiders list today. When you visit a state as big and diverse as Texas, there are a million different trips you can take. Let's say you've got an appetite for whitewater kayaking. You can get your own. So this is why they call it Devil's River. Trip to Texas. Or maybe you have an actual appetite. I'll take a pound of brisket, six ribs, uh, three links of sausage, and a, a piece of pecan pie. Trip to Texas. Go to TravelTexas.com slash get your own for the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours.